electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the state of stocks after the worst day for your money in four months. Is it safe to buy the dip or is it simply too soon? We debate that with the committee as one member is buying today, at least one. We'll also be joined in a few minutes by Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, who just revised his call on the market. You need to hear that. Joining me for the hour today, Stephanie Link, Rob Seachin, Jim Labenthal, Josh Brown. Let's check stocks. Got a nice bump off the open. About 11 o'clock, it was all gone. It's coming back a little. Dow's up 141. S&P is good for about 17, a third or so of a percent. NASDAQ with a nice bounce of, well, two-thirds of a one percent. Russell is good for about seven and a half points. Tech has been volatile, though. Josh, I guess the central question, buyable dip, or is this now the start of that correction that we've been thinking might be coming? What do you think? Because I look at you as a seller today, and I, I see you selling a stock that you loved, that you made the case for multiple times on this show, that you had bought just back in April at the end, and that is Leslie's. It's a pool supplier. It's been down in the last three months, and you're a seller. Can you tell us why and what that says, if anything, about your big market view? No, it has nothing to do with my big market view. Um, Leslie's did something disgusting shortly uh, after I started to buy it. They did two secondaries in a row, neither one of which was raising proceeds for the company to use. Uh, basically, they were creating space for some of their larger shareholders to sell. I don't mind if you do that once within a few months of the IPO. But if you do two in a row inside of a 60-day period, basically you're gross, and I don't do business with gross people. So I'm out. Um, I guess I got it wrong. I I, I think I came out at something like a 20% loss. That's okay, though. Um, I'm adding to other positions right now, and I would not interpret uh, the sale of, of an individual stock as a market call. I don't make big market calls. I'm as bullish as ever. I buy every dip. I buy every correction. Okay, interesting, because Stephanie Link, Jim Cramer says it's too soon to buy this dip. That terrible day we had yesterday, he says, quote, mindless dip buying has been a great strategy for the past 15 months, but it's worthless in the face of a serious sell-off, which is what we have now. You must not agree with that because you did (laughs) buy on the dip and you bought Caterpillar. And you bought Diamondback Energy yesterday. Can you tell us why and what you make of what Kramer says and what your move suggests that you don't agree with that? Because because I'm focused on fundamentals, I don't know how to time this market. I don't know. I don't think anybody does. All I try to do is buy low and sell high. And these two stocks are down quite a bit from their highs. But let's just step back for half of a second here. September, we have all talked about, is a volatile month, and this year is no different. We have worried about Delta for a while and peak growth. Now it's China. But this against a backdrop of the economy and data that's actually coming in pretty good. Retail sales is 10% above pre-pandemic levels. Industrial production is just two percentage points 
below pre-pandemic levels. We've seen a snapback for sure. But more importantly, Scott, I listened to all the conferences that are going on. And two weeks ago, Vertical Research had an industrialist conference. And every single one of these companies there talked about the demand is strong. It has not wavered at all. It's the supply side of things that are giving them headaches. Thankfully, many of them have pricing power. And thankfully, several of them have done restructurings. That brings me to Caterpillar. I think the demand is going to be off the charts. Ashton just reported last night. They told you it was. They just raised their numbers. But the stock cat is down 26% from its highs. It's a very strong U.S. infrastructure play. It's a restructuring story, so margin should hold in. It's a rising free cash flow story. They're going to generate free cash flow this year of a billion dollars. They're buying back $2 billion worth of stock. It trades at 19 times a discount to the market with a 2-2 yield. So that is a good story to me. That means when the, when the stock breaks, that's a buying opportunity. It's down 26% from its highs, as I mentioned. Diamondback, kind of same deal, right? It was down 6% alone yesterday, um, and it's down 20% from its high. Uh, Last week, they announced an accelerated buyback program. So they feel confident in their fundamentals. CapEx is coming down. Production is going up. They're reducing debt. So to me, I am not going to time this market well. I know it. But if I can average into really good, strong fundamental positions, which I know Jim would agree with, if you can do that and you can buy in small increments along the way, well, then I'm going to do it all day long. Okay. Which brings me to Mr. All-In, better known as Farmer Jim who has been bullish, arguably more so than anybody else on this program. He sees the Dow Jones Industrial Average go down 900 points yesterday. He looks at his portfolio and he says, I have to buy more nothing. You didn't buy anything on the dip. Cleveland Cliffs Cliffs was down 10% yesterday. You called in and made the case as to why you love it. It's down another 4% yep. today. I don't see you buying anything. Hey. What's going on, Mr. All-In? Oh, wait, wait, you just wait, got wait, a 1,000-point gift. Yeah, I'm all in, Scott. I mean, this, it's the simple math of if I'm at 2% cash, I'd have to sell something to buy something. I'm not selling anything. I absolutely you love my portfolio right now. Be somebody. Step up. That's okay, right. Josh, Josh. I, you know, the sad thing is we can't see each other the way we used to be able to on the desk. I have to assume that Josh is laughing and smiling as he says that. Um, we all know that margin is the way that people get into deep trouble um so but let me look let me continue absolutely nothing has changed in my outlook absolutely nothing and cleveland cliffs down 10 percent yesterday that is just the market being irrational which it does from time to time if it weren't irrational all of us on this show and you scott we'd have nothing to talk about okay sometimes it gets irrational if you don't own cleveland cliffs and you're not buying it right now i can't help you i can't make the case any more clearer or logical than i did yesterday Their costs are going down. Their revenues are going up. You're going to get free cash flow sent back to you. What Stephanie just gave us two minutes ago as far as the economic backdrop was perfect. Um, No surprise that I love what she said. The economy is actually quite strong. We're going to go through a massive inventory restocking. And companies like Cleveland Cliffs or Marathon Petroleum or GM, these are the companies that are going to be 
to be providing the goods and services that are needed to build those semiconductor plants in Arizona. Union Pacific is going to be needed to transport goods across the country, including all of those containers sitting off the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach. I mean, you just have to look forward past two weeks, which if you're a long-term investor, you can do. But the market will be irrational. I think Josh Brown said Let me make this very clear. Okay, go ahead. I'm all it's in, not Scott. Not wavering for one second. I am all in. Okay. Um, we get your point. You made it very clear. I, I hear you loud and clear. Josh Brown said he was as bullish yes, as he's ever been. Stephanie Link is bullish. Jim Labenthal's bullish. The Dow is moving higher. We're better than 200 points now. Even the bears on China, even those who look at that story on Evergrande and say, you know, I don't know what the impact's going to be in China or for the Chinese economy, say it's not going to be a rollover effect and have this contagion effect all over the globe, including Jim Chanos, who was with us yesterday. Here's what Jim Chanos told us about what he sees. I think that that what Evergrande is telling us is, and I'm going to disappoint some of your your commentators, is we don't think it's systemic to the Western financial markets. How will they handle a bailout that everybody still thinks is coming in some way, shape, or form? Will Western bondholders be bailed out? Will it only go to property owners who are owed apartments that are not yet constructed by Evergrande? Um, Will banks take a haircut? And we don't know yet. All right, Rob Seachin, so there may be an impact in China. You know, I don't know how there couldn't be if you're going to have a company like that of that size and stature, second largest property developer in China, um, be all but insolvent. But not a contagion effect that you need to worry about here. Do you agree with that? And what are you doing in the market? Do your moves match the other three? Yeah, I I think you got to pay attention to that, because every now and then something comes along that does surprisingly knock you into another atmosphere. I I do not think this is that event. I, you know, anybody that wasn't paying attention to that wasn't wasn't paying attention. I mean, the bonds were trading at 20 cents on the dollar um, and the equity didn't move down that much yesterday. It moved down uh, 10 percent. You get a stock that misses earnings, it's down 25 percent in some cases. So I think that that was probably widely discounted. And I think our view is that the Chinese policymakers are going to figure out how to thread that needle. Uh, But we're paying attention to it, just like we pay attention to everything. But we maintain, uh, like everybody, a constructive view on risk assets, uh, positively favoring U.S. equities that are benefiting from macro drivers uh, that stem from the recovery. That's mostly cyclical from from our lens. And so yesterday we used it as an opportunity to uh, sell some of the more uh, 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 rate, uh, sell some of the interest rate sensitive stocks uh, like the home builders. We sold ITB. We bought financials yesterday. Uh, we've been buying financials on dips. We think that you have to continue to buy some of these cyclical names when markets get dislocated. We haven't abandoned our quality growers, still own them, think they'll probably underperform in the short run. But for now, anytime we get that type of volatility, we are we are buying cyclicality. So in the intermediate term, we're positive. 
we would say that in the short run, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see more volatility. The options markets indicate that if we have a further sell-off, selling could beget selling. But again, we think that those are dips to buy, and we may m- maintain a bullish stance. All right. So, Josh Brown, uh, let me let me move on to Josh Brown. Seach, I'll come ba- I'll come back to you. Is no worries. We we said that you're having this rolling correction, and the only thing that unsettles the market fully to where you get a bigger pullback is is if big tech fang plus starts to roll over is anybody concerned about the fact and josh brown i come to you for this that apple's down eight and a half percent from its 52-week high amazon's down 11 percent from its 52-week high alphabet's on track to snap an eight-month winning streak its longest since 09 the smh is point is poised for its worst month that's the <coughs> semiconductor etf since march of 2020 are we in the midst of the big no-no happening and you get a rollover in this and then people like Mike Wilson, who's coming on in a second, is going to be right. We're going to get that correction. Well, listen, I hope I hope we do. I have stock to buy. Like if, if we're saying that if, if the strategist at all time highs two weeks ago, were saying there was like five to seven percent left in the market this year. Wouldn't it be great to buy the market 10 percent lower from where they were saying that? And let's say they're right. And instead of earning five to seven, it's more like 15 to 17. Like that's where money is made. So we talked about this idea that the market had been vulnerable for a while. You just had like this ongoing deterioration in breadth in advance versus decline, stocks above the 200 day, et cetera, et cetera. But there were like some very strong stocks still holding up the market, still accounting for most of the gains this summer. And now they're hitting those stocks. Historically, that hasn't been the start of a correction, just so everyone's clear. Historically, that's been the last shoe to drop. And by the time the Apples and Amazons are getting hit, the rest of the market is already starting to recover. So that could also be the case. But just like bigger picture, was Evergrande the straw that broke the camel's back? Maybe. It doesn't have to be systemic to Western markets in order for it to cause people to check themselves. And that's a very important thing that doesn't get discussed. Let's say it's ring-fenced. We all know how that's going to resolve itself, by the way. The Chinese government's going to make some, some, some executives go on a permanent vacation, and then they'll divide up that property amongst the other companies, and, and ultimately it'll, it'll, it'll be worked out. It has nothing to do with banks in America, for example. Uh, but where it gets relevant is that it's a gut check for people that were taking more risk than maybe they thought they were. So I feel like that bout of volatility that resurfaced over the last week or so is actually a very healthy thing. We don't want people feeling like risk goes unpunished all the time. We don't want people feeling, uh, you know, we don't want to end up in a Minsky moment where the only risk is not taking enough risk, right? So I, I think it's a healthy environment still. It's okay that stocks are correcting. We're still having one of the best years ever. Uh, at the index level, mm-hmm. uh, and there are still many stocks that are that that look fantastic, even in the midst of a pullback. So until that changes materially, and I will tell you when it does, uh, that's my attitude right now. Okay, and I'm a hungry hippo today. Okay, uh, and you're not the only one. Tom Lee says we believe stocks will soon be bought hard. Too many parallels, he says, to September of 2020. Wolf Research buy the dip or bail out buy the dip. They say exclamation point. Bernstein, our our short-term equity sentiment indicator signals a buy. David Costin, Goldman Sachs, S&P will end 2021 at 4,700. UBS, strong buy the dip, investor mindset. 
And then there's our friend Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley's chief market strategist. He joins us now, who says a 20 percent correction seems more likely. What happened at 10 percent? You get a bad day and now you have to up it to 20. Well, thanks, Scott. I mean, look, it's uh, we, our base case is still 10 percent. And, you know, look, a lot of commentary I agree with that you know, was just said on the show. I mean, you're not going to time these things perfectly. We're in a position to make these tactical calls. And we've had a view that the index is going to end the year at 4000. OK, I don't know when that's going to correct and we're going to end at 4000. But I have high conviction that that's where we're going to end, because that's what our process tells us. Now, we also try to make money within the market. Right. There's never. It's never a time to sell everything. That's never been the call. And I think the most important thing to have gotten right this year and what's going to be important to get right the rest the rest of this year is what do you own within the market, okay? So obviously, we had a huge cyclical rotation at the beginning of the year. At that point, we made it the call that we're going to go through this mid-cycle transition, have a bit of a rolling correction. That played out. We made the quality bet, which is essentially the FANG stocks. That's the NASDAQ 100 and S&P 500. That's what those are. Those are the highest quality indices in the world. And then to Josh's point, when they get to those names, eventually you're getting closer to the end. You know, we're down five percent intraday yesterday. Should, can we get another five percent? I think the answer is yes. Why we rallied off we, that though? Doesn't that tell? What, what does it say though that we rallied off of the lowest level yesterday, and we are getting some level of a bounce today? That pattern is fairly true to form. Anytime we've had a, a pullback of substance, it's been bought. So why is this going to be different? Well, I think the trend broke. Okay, so we did eventually. We did took out the 50-day moving average. Everybody was ta- telling me it was never going to break, and it broke violently yesterday. I think you got to pay attention to that. I respect the market, and I would suggest other people respect the market. And the message in that, what that's saying, is that that trend was challenged, and we have not regained that 50-day moving average yet. We'll see. It could happen. Okay, I don't, I'm just not rushing back in at the index level. That's not been our call for the last six months. We've been very focused on individual stocks. And sectors. And that's why our portfolios are beating the S&P by 200 basis points this year. So, you know, I mean, I'm comfortable with our call. I'm very comfortable that the market's going to end lower than here by the, end, by the end of this year for a lot of different reasons that we discussed, whether it's decelerating growth, it's the Fed moving towards tapering. You can blame it on Evergrande. You can blame it on all kinds of things. That's not the point. The point is that the whole process suggests to us that the, bat, the fair value of the market in the, the year will be about 4000 Okay, so that's about 400 points lower than where we are now. I had a conversation yesterday with BlackRock's Rick Reeder. He's bullish. I want you to listen to what he said, Mike, and let's discuss on the other side if we could. If you said to me, where are equities going? They are going higher. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that equities are going higher. And, you know, I think I said it on a call last week. We can still reprice. We can still retrace a, a, a few percent of the gain. But equities are going higher. I mean, there's no question in my mind when you look at the alternatives in the world. You know, people have talked about what this means for growth. Listen, U.S. growth is still going to be durable. The, the demand side of growth, what's caused a slowdown in growth in the U.S., no doubt there's been some variant risk. But the f- primary factor that's been that's been dulling some of the growth has been on the supply side. The demand continues to be robust. So I still think the equity market has got some upside, maybe some significant upside. How do you how do you counter that? I mean, that that sounds pretty reasonable to me. Well, I mean, OK, fine. I mean, look, I think the equity market's going up, too, over time. I mean, he didn't give us a time frame. I disagree that the equity market has good upside in the next three to four months. I think it is very, and when we say equity market, let's be careful, Scott. Once again, S&P 500 is not every stock and not every sector. You know, there's been some stocks that are down 25, 30, 40% this year, and those are probably buys. 
right? It's, it's the main average that has been elevated because people have run to safety. You know, here's a little fact that people probably aren't aware of, but since the end of March, okay, which is when we made the mid-cycle transition call, 20-year Treasury bonds has outperformed the S&P 500. That's a risk-free asset, okay? So, like, what's the better risk-reward over the last six months? That, that tells me that the, the, the broader market averages are up because rates have come down and there's been a flight to quality. Now, does that mean, does that mean that, that that's, still, that's a safe place to be? Maybe. Okay, or maybe what it's saying is that the market is just very tired. People have run into the safe areas, and that's when the correction can happen. And I think it began this week. You use this, you know, you, you keep saying mid-cycle, and I'm, I'm, I want to make sure I understand what you're talking about. A mid-cycle of what? Are we talking about the mid-cycle of the expansion post-COVID? What does that mean? Yeah, so the way we've defined it, and I think we've, you know, we've, we've sort of owned this narrative for a while. Coming out of a recession, you want to obviously grab it on as, to as much risk as you possibly can. That's, that was our strategy coming out of COVID. We call it the early cycle phase of the recovery. That's usually the best time for returns. Everybody does well. Every stock does well. And then when you get to the point in the cycle, economic cycle where the rate of change, peak rate of change is in front of you, right in front of you from a growth standpoint and from a policy standpoint, the market starts to change. It starts to move away from the low quality assets, away from the early cycle beneficiaries and into higher quality assets. And that's exactly what's happened since March. Eventually, we transition into the mid-cycle phase of the expansion and then things can broaden out. And all we're saying is that that transition period is not yet over. It typically ends with the Fed moving away from maximum accommodation. In 94 and 04, it was a rate hike. In 2011, it was the ending of QE2. This time, it's the beginning of tapering of asset purchases, and it coincides with a 10 to 20% correction in the index. It gets to the last bastions of safety, as Josh mentioned. I just don't think we're there yet. What, what, I, don't, what I don't quite understand is it feels like we were, we were only out of the the pandemic for 10 seconds before the Delta variant sort of put everything on what feels like or at least felt like a bit of a pause and got everybody worried that, OK, maybe that's as good as it gets. But who's to say that we just didn't have an early cycle pause? And the moment we get beyond the Delta variant, which is going to happen, and it's probably going to happen sooner rather than later, you're not going to have a big ramp up. I just don't understand how we got to mid-cycle in such a nascent recovery. It was so early when, when we got scared about the Delta variant. Now it's, we're already mid-cycle? Oh, well, then this cycle has gone at light speed. I don't think that's a surprise at all. I mean, that's been our call all along, right, the V-shaped recovery, that this was the quickest recession in history. It was the fastest recovery in history. So it doesn't surprise me at all that we're at mid-cycle this soon. I mean, unemployment rate has fallen by almost 85%, okay, 90% of what the increase was. That's record speed. So we've already used up a lot of capacity. I mean, we're way above trend on consumption of just about every item that we track. You know, GDP, I mean, the recession is is gone. It's way behind us. So, I mean, the fact that we're mid-cycle, I mean, that shouldn't surprise anybody, Scott. I mean, it's it's happening really, really fast. The, The recession itself, and the recovery, and the market is following that pattern to a T, okay? And that's why our alpha strategies have done so well, because we're just moving as fast as the market is in these rotations. Mike, I'm, I'm not, look, the, the moves that you've made in your individual portfolios, you said you're, you're beating the, 
I think you said you're beating the, the, the S&P by 200 basis points. I, I, I think that's what I heard you say. Um, that's great. I mean, you, look, you called the rolling correction and you were prepared for it perhaps better than, than most people were. But your broad call of a 10 percent pullback hasn't materialized. And now you've upped the ante to 20 percent and put, you know, a, a good deal of thought and research and and words behind why you think that's going to happen. And you say, you know, essentially you're pulling a Philadelphia 76ers of trust the process. Well, maybe the process is flawed in that. We're going to still have a sizable ramp in the not too distant future once we can take care of some of these issues that are in front of us right now. And it's not going to materialize into a 400 point pullback in the S&P 500 as we figure all that out. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about, I mean, why we think, you know, maybe the consensus is wrong. I think people are using Delta as an excuse for why things are slowing. Okay, you know. Once again, the amplitude of this cycle is more dramatic than normal, right? The, the rate of change on the accelerative part was, was greater than normal, just like the decline into the recession was faster and steeper than normal, which suggests what? It suggests that the mid-cycle deceleration will probably be greater than normal, too. I think the slowdown that we're seeing, Scott, is more a function of basically payback and demand, fiscal stimulus benefits running off, okay, and then a little bit of monetary tightening probably later this year as well. And I think the numbers for the next six months are they're too high. I think people are going to be surprised at the, the cost pressures, which companies are talking about. Stephanie mentioned the industrial sector supply issues. Well, that's a problem. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, demand's good. Maybe maybe it's not. But supply is an issue and that's going to be a margin problem. So we, we when we do our process, our analysis, it suggests that earnings revision breadth is about to turn down sharply. OK, PMIs are coming back towards 50. Very normal. And the rate of change on that will transmit itself into the financial markets at the index level, and we'll have that correction. Could we be wrong? Of course we could be wrong. I mean, we're not, we're not always right, but we, have a, we do have a process. We do trust it, okay? And we think it's on track to do what we're saying we think it's going to do now. Jim Labenthal has a question for you. I've come to calling him Mr. All-In because he's about as bullish as it gets, and I <laughs> would presume that he has a bone to pick with you Uh about your view versus his. Jim, go ahead. And let me also let you know, Jim yeah. asked a question at, at some point. If, if I may have to take a break and we'll come back and get the rest of your answer, Mike Wilson. So bear with me on that. But Jim, please, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, Mike, first off, thanks for being on. I always appreciate it when you're on. Quite frankly, you and I are often on different sides of the fence, but that's OK. Scott just covered a lot of the bones that I would pick, but there's one I want to ask you about, which is you did mention Fed taper as a potential risk and perhaps even a catalyst for bringing uh, the correction into view. I would submit to you, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, that the Fed taper doesn't matter at all. And I say that on two reasons. One is historically, and granted we have a sample set of one, but historically it didn't matter last time. Uh, and also just the idea that, OK, maybe maybe the 10 year Treasury goes from one point three to two percent. That doesn't matter either. And, and frankly, the, even as they taper, they're still putting cash into the system, which means there's going to be liquidity increases for the next 10 to 12 months. Tell me what you think about that. And, and you know what, Mike, tell us what you think about that after the break, because I do want to take a quick one. I don't want to lose you, though. I want I know our viewers want to hear your answer. We're also going to talk about Uber. Those shares are rallying on a positive outlook. We're going to talk to Josh Brown about the position that he has in that stock. We'll do it next. And as a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back right after this. 
Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. President Biden urging the United Nations General Assembly to work together to battle climate change, COVID and human rights abuses. But he also warned against a new standoff between world superpowers. We'll stand up for our allies and our friends and oppose attempts by stronger countries to dominate weaker ones, whether through changes to territory by force, economic coercion, technical exploitation or disinformation. But we're not seeking Say it again, we are not seeking a new Cold War or a world divided into rigid blocks. And on the news, how Biden's speech will play in the heartland, where at least one poll shows that his support is plunging. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. The House is getting ready to vote this afternoon on a temporary spending bill and a suspension of the federal debt limit through the end of next year. Many Republicans, though, say that they will vote against it. And the man who shot the video of Rodney King's brutal traffic stop in 1991 has died. The images recorded by George Holiday sparked nationwide outrage over police brutality. Holiday died of pneumonia after contracting COVID-19. And the AP reports that he was not vaccinated. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. I appreciate that very much. Rahel, thank you. Okay, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson is back with us. Wanted to give you time, Mike, to answer Jim Labenthal's question. Paraphrasing Jim, it's sort of taper big whoop. Like the, mark, the market's not going to care. It's ready. They've they've told us it's coming. And when it does, if it drives rates up a little bit, the market's not going to care. You, you suggest maybe it's going to have a bigger impact. Well, look, I mean, I think tapering is a lot different than actually raising rates. I mean, they've tried to make that case, too. But look, it's removal of maximum accommodation. That's the main message. And oh, by the way, you know, the, the Fed moving in this direction is a good thing. I want to make that perfectly clear. Like if they weren't moving towards tapering, that would have meant that the recovery had stalled out and it hadn't worked. So we're moving in that direction. That has, you know, implications for financial assets. It just does. I mean, the financial conditions will tighten when they start to taper. That's just a fact. And if you don't think that, you know, valuations are affected by financial conditions, well, you got another thing coming. So that's our call. Valuations are coming down, and that's one part of the component. It's also colliding 
with the negative rate of change on revision breadth, which we think is going to begin in October. Let me ask you lastly, before I let you run, and you've been gracious with your time, and I really do appreciate that. Do you think that FANG is going down maybe 20 percent from here? Because your call is going to be wrong if it doesn't. Well, look, I mean, FANG is a diverse group, too. I mean, like Google, we have in our portfolio, right? That's the one we chose, and it, it has done really well. And I think, you know, other ones will do well also. When, I, when you use that term, by the way, you're talking about large cap growth stacks. Okay? Yeah, that, I mean, that's some what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, 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 I am market. talking about that, of, co- of course. The biggest ones, right. the biggest ones in, in, the, in the S&P. Right. And some will do fine here. Some will some will actually perform better than the than the market. And, and look, I think the key thing to do here, Scott, is as we go into the fall, I think people are expecting some corrective activity. We all know we've had it too good here for the last year or so. We have a correction. What I'm going to be doing, okay, and, and your viewers should be doing the same thing. Let's look for relative strength into that correction. I'm going to be buying relative strength. That's what I want. I want the stocks to go down the least into this correction, whatever it is, whether it's 5, 10, 15%, 20%, maybe. Okay, we'll see. I'm going to be really focused on that. And as an investor, I would suggest all of your viewers be doing the same thing. You, uh, you're always a good sport, a thoughtful one, too. I appreciate the conversation with you always. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate all right, it. That's Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson. We'll catch up with him again soon, I'm sure. Take a look at Uber shares today. They're higher. The company revised its outlook higher. The CEO said this morning right on this network that they are clearly on the path to profitability. Josh Brown owns the stock. And they tell me today you bought more this morning. Talk to us. Yeah, I bought more on the open this morning. This stock, where it opened today, even even with an opening gap because of that increase in guidance, uh, not just on revenue growth, but on profitability, where it opened today was at the same price the stock traded at in February of uh, in February of 20, like before the pandemic. And that really doesn't make any sense considering the massive strides that this business has made in that time. They now have a delivery business that is larger than the rides business. And the rides business is rebounding miraculously fast. Uh, So much so that we may see a free cash flow uh, positive quarter in Q3, which we're in right now. um, And they say that they're going to deliver on profitability, barring some explosive new variant, they're going to deliver on profitability in Q4, which is what Dara has been talking about for, I think, almost 18 months now. So even despite the pandemic, they're going to come through. This is basically a a stock that I think should be closer to 50 than 40, uh, even in the condition that the world is in now. And as the world improves, uh, uh, fully recovers, I really think that this could be one of the best performers among all the large cap tech names, especially once they're a profitable stock. So I bought some more on the open, meaningful amount. Uh, I, I averaged up because my, my cost average was in the 30s. Um, but I, I really think that the stock can work. And I think Dara is doing a fantastic job, not only executing, but communicating with the street. It's good to hear from him today on, on Squawk. Uh, that stock's at the highs of the day. Uh, what a monster day for shares of Uber, up better than 12% now. As Josh Brown says, that he bought more. All right, coming up, Wynn Resorts under pressure yet again today. We'll get Steph's comments now. Remember Jim Chanos was with us yesterday. He said that stock should be like 40 or 50 bucks. Jim Labenthal weighed in. Stephanie Link will next. Plus, FedEx earnings are after the bell. Somebody is buying that stock ahead of the numbers. You're going to hear from that person. Coming up, and CNBC's Delivering Alpha is back September 29th, bringing together the biggest names in the investment community. You can register today 
DeliveringAlpha.com. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Wynn should be trading in the 40s right now, based on where Wynn Macau is, where Wynn Bet is, and on a comparable multiple to where Las Vegas Sands was bought out to their U.S. operations uh, at about $6 billion. We think the U.S. operations of Wynn are worth about the same, about $6 billion. If you put all those numbers together, you get a number, you know, south of 50 bucks. Okay, that was short seller Jim Chanos yesterday on this very program telling us why he thinks Wynn Resorts is a 40 to $50 stock. Jim Labenthal weighed in yesterday. It's now your turn, Stephanie Link. What do you think about what Mr. Chanos had to say about a position that you have? Yeah, let's talk about Macau because we know Boston, Las Vegas, and gaming are hitting on all cylinders. Macau, there are three issues. How many licenses will be allowed? The second thing is how long will the licenses be for? And then the third is the level of supervision by the government. On the license issue, Wynn has been in Macau since 2006. It has 1,008 rooms, 273,000 square feet of gaming space. They have size, they have scale, and they have been hiring locals. That's what the government wants. They have been hiring locals for years. And they have good relations with the government, by the way. So I think they get the license next, ju- next June, no question. I, by the way, I think Las Vegas Sands does too. On the terms, it's not going to be 20 years like the last go-round, but it'll probably be about 10 years. Anything less than that is a disappointment, but it's still going to be medium to long term. It's not going to be short term. So 10 years, I'm fine with that. The government's supervision, that's the wild card. That's the reason why the stock is down 41% from its highs. But the government has said that they want size, scale, and sustainable growth in this industry. Last year, gross GDP in Macau, $24 billion. They can't afford to have all locals in this region. They just can't because they won't have the size and the scale that Wynn and Las Vegas Sands has. So I get the number one player down 41%. I got a big piece of the business that's, that's not Macau, but I got a stock that is under so much pressure. I think it is so oversold. And so I'm a buyer. Okay. Uh, Farmer Jim, Mr. Chanos said he was going to send you his spreadsheet. He sent me his some of the parts analysis, which I forwarded to you before our program. I, I think you had time to check it out. He basically says it's a $49 stock. That, that's where it should be trading. Did you have yeah. a chance to look at it, and do you have a response? I, I did. I did. Uh, there are two responses. Uh, Stephanie just gave one of them, which is Macau is not worth zero, which is in his analysis. The other part, though, and this is very important, is he said, OK, if it's worth zero, then what's the U.S. operations worth? In the, in the clip you just said, he said six billion dollars. He's getting that versus 600 million of EBITDA next year at a 10 time multiple. I think both of those numbers are way off. I, I think he's got the conclusion first and using the numbers to justify that conclusion. The reason I say 
say that is because last quarter, the U.S. operations did $180 million of EBITDA. If you just annualize that quarter, that's $720 million. I think next year's EBITDA is going to be bigger than this year's. I think you're going to be at $800 million. And I think the right multiple is 12 times, which is where it traded in 2019. That gives a $9.6 billion valuation to the U.S. operations versus his $6 billion uh, valuation. Basically, what it tells you is at this price, Macau is being valued in the market at zero. And as Stephanie just told you, that's just not the case. And I agree with Stephanie. Um, I think where, the, where we're going to have to revisit this is after the next quarter's results. All right. We will. We will. Um, I appreciate the debate. Yep. Um, and I'm glad you guys both had a chance to, to weigh Good in. Good debate. All right. We have bullish calls today on two stocks in Stephanie Link's portfolio. We'll get you those trades. Plus, it's Hispanic Heritage Month. We're spotlighting CNBC contributors, business leaders, and our own on-air anchors and reporters. Here's the former United Airlines CEO, Oscar Munoz. The way to build the next generation of Latino leaders is frankly to groom them through a pipeline. You have to specifically focus on the recruitment of the talent and then the professional development. And then while inside the company, making them feel like they have value and they have equal access to the top. And that just takes a lot of effort and work and focus from the senior most leaders in the corporation to make sure they give people from the underrepresented minority community a chance. All right, we have two bullish calls today on two stocks in the Linkster's portfolio. So, Stephanie Link, you're front and center for calls of the day today. Number one, Fortinet, initiated by at Stiefel, 355, the price target. That's 19% from here. A lot of life left at this party, they say. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, it's up 102% year to date, so I have been trimming, but I'm still overweight because it's a market share growth story. They've got new products. They have price performance advantage. They're winning in enterprise, which is key. Two numbers to sh- just to shout out from the last quarter that are important. Product growth was up 41% and billings up 35%. So that gives me visibility that they're going to capture a lot of share in this total addressable market of $800 billion. GE is the other one that uh, is a call of the day. Oh, yes, um, it the is. The U.S. House Committee. Yes, it, I'm, it glad is. You so, I'm glad you Citigroup mentioned that, was, Steph. Good job. <laughs> I'm just going to roll with the punches. Well, you can here. just toss it to um, break, so too, GE, when you're done. So So Citigroup came out with a note today, really good note, actually. They're talking about the U.S. House Committee is focused on renewable energy and upgrading the grid by decarbonizing it. If it gets final passage, GE has a 50 percent market share in the U.S. onshore wind. That'll help their business substantially. I that's great if it happens. If it doesn't happen, I like health care. I like aviation. I like free cash flow growth. They beat free cash flow by 500 million last quarter. So I think that that is something to watch. The stock trades on free cash flow. I think it's only going higher from here. Well, if it trades on free cash flow and it beat free cash flow, why is it down seven and a half percent over three months? Because all of the industrials are down because we've had a rotation into secular growth, defensive growth. And cyclicals have actually all cyclicals have lagged um, minus financials, to be honest. But uh, industrials and materials um, really have uh, taken it on the chin. And I I think it's an opportunity. That's why I was buying cat. Okay, I hear you. All right. FedEx and Nike, they're set to report earnings this week. Both stocks down about five percent for the month. We're going to debate whether you should buy them ahead of the results. And we'll do that next. All right. FedEx is getting ready to report earnings after the bill today. Tiffany McGee joins us now. Tiff, it's good to see you. How you been? 
I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you. So you bought more uh, FedEx. Let's take let's take I FedEx. Did. Let's take FedEx first. You bought more yesterday. I did. And so, you know, they report earnings. They're getting ready to report. And for me, it's this is really a story of two things, right? So number one, opportunity, and number two, pricing. So in the way of opportunity, you know, e-commerce, this, uh, this revolution is not coming. It's here, right? And so we don't want uh, things next week. We want things next day. And so FedEx owns that space. They are 51% of their business is the express space, right? So versus like a UPS, where they really play in that domestic parcel delivery, FedEx really owns the express the, the express space. And the second thing I like is they bought an e-commerce, uh, excuse me, uh, um, a, a company, a delivery company in India. Two-thirds of the world's millennials are located in emerging market, market countries, primarily concentrated in China and India. And so they've taken their express model over the summer and implemented, and implemented it in India. And these millennials, Scott, want things really, really fast, and they live in this kind of digital age. So I really see opportunities for growth for FedEx. Um, so I'm definitely bullish on that. Yes. Are they having current challenges? Of course, like everybody else, right? So like supply chain issues, um, increased uh, costs, and also hiring employees. But this is going to be temporary, I mean, right? This too a, shall pass. The stock's and been so, a bust. I mean, it's, you know, it's 21.5% off its high year to date. It's a loser. Over the last three months, it's a loser. I mean, every metric I've got in front of me, except for one year, it's been a loser. And even over a year, it's only up three and a half percent. So they got a lot of work to do. The other one I want to get your thought on is Nike, because you bought more last week and then you bought even more this morning. I did. So they report on Thursday. And so I don't ever sell things based on news, but sometimes I buy things based on news if it gives me if it gives me a good price. So we had that analyst call uh, about like early uh, last week talking about Nike's issues. But this has been a story all year across the board. Uh, what's been winning is companies with pricing power and also strong balance sheets. And Nike is, is, is exactly one of those companies. They have the pricing power. They own the athletic space. Right. Lulu has the athleisure space, but Nike still owns the athletic space. And so they beat earnings for the last four quarters. Um, you know, their sales, Nike direct sales were up with up 73%, right, in reopen mode. Um, and so I still see a lot of opportunity for this. And so this was an opportunity for me to, you know, you, you know I'm a long-term investor, Scott, mm-hmm. so I really am not a trader. I'm going to hold things for a very, very long time. But it doesn't mean that I can't work to, to, to get my average price better. And this is what the story was here. I appreciate you telling your story to us. Tiffany McGee, we'll see you soon. All right, we'll do final trades next. All right, let's do final trades. Rob Seachin, you're up first. JP Morgan, uh, yesterday's move brought it down 8% from its highs. It's up a little bit today, but not enough. A lot of that was due to the yield curve flattening, which we don't suspect is going to last. So you get to buy a high-quality name on sale. You mentioned the XLF, too, which you moved into. Uh, Stephanie Link. TJX, it's a reopen story, but they're very strong. They're seeing very strong demand. Comps were up 20% last quarter. People want the treasure hunt. Gross margins are headed higher. Stocks done nothing all year. I like it. All right, Farmer Jim. Kinder Morgan will benefit from natural gas demand. All right, and the reform broker, Josh Brown. Staying long, Uber. Eyes of the day. Uh, what a huge day for Uber, up 12.5%. Does it for us. Thanks for watching. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, 
and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.